Hello! You're listening to Season 1, Episode 3 of the NeuroDescent Podcast. I'm Nick Sutarelu. I'm a neurodivergent scholar, writer, and social theorist, and I'm here with Molly Friesenborg. Hi, I'm Molly. I'm a nonprofit professional, work in education and racial justice, and work tangentially to a lot of healthcare professionals, and happen to be married to Nick. So in this first season, Molly and I are exploring mental health through what I hope is an intriguing angle. Demons, demonic possession, exorcism, and other similar supernatural things that are supposed to affect our minds. The reason for this topic is that I want to explore a world before psychiatry, when people understood the body, the mind, and their possible afflictions differently. So, so far, uh, we've, we've explored both uh, ancient Greece and also uh, early Christianity. Hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So in episode two, we talked about Jesus Christ. In particular, we talked about him as an exorcist, as someone who could heal others from demonic possession. And in this way, he uh, could relieve their distress. And interestingly, we also talked about how the writer of the Gospel of Mark seems keen to show Jesus Christ as a healer who is superior to Asclepius and Hippocrates. The drama. And we discussed Hippocrates and Asclepius in our first episode. And as you might remember, Hippocrates advocated that we view mental illness as being caused by natural causes. He argued against the idea of gods or demons being the cause of epilepsy and other afflictions. Um, Asclepius was the god he and his followers were associated with. Uh, both Asclepius and Hippocrates remained influential uh, within the healing arts for nearly a millennium. The Hippocratic tradition, as well as the cult of Asclepius, are still thriving, or, or at least still present at the time of, of our story today. So our story today is going to focus on a man named Saint Jerome. Mm. So are there still like Asclepian temples, or just like the idea of it is like still popular at this time period? I believe there are still Asclepian temples um, in existence. Uh, <clears throat> at least for the beginning part of St. Jerome's life. Got it. Okay. Okay, so St. Jerome was an influential Christian scholar, and he lived from around 340 to 420 AD. So that's uh, 300 to 400 years after Jesus, and about 700 years after Hippocrates. And during Jerome's lifetime, these so-called pagan gods like Asclepius were still present and quite prominent, um, but Jerome lived in a time when that was changing. Um, he was alive during a time when Christianity was gaining a lot of power. In 380 AD, when he was about 40 years old, the emperor, Emperor Theodosius, made Christianity the state religion of the ah, Roman Empire. So it was a really good time to be alive for him. Yes, right. So this is a very convenient thing for Jerome, and, and as a result, in about two years after that, in 382 AD... Um, ah, so when you said Asclepian temples were at least there for the first part, you're thinking maybe they weren't so popular after Christianity became the uh, official... Yes, as Christianity gains power, that's when they start to dismantle... So we're at the very end of the Hippocrapasi's <laughs> reign! <laughs> Alright, so um, two years after Christianity became the official religion, Pope Damascus I hired Jerome to adopt the church's Latin versions of the gospel. So he's best known for his translation of the gospels into Latin. I see. So in that way, he's still like 
impacted everything about Christianity after him because he Absolutely. really had so much power in that moment. He is he's very influential. He's commented on by other uh, other people that we'll talk about later in, in our history. Um, yeah, he's he's very influential. He was a big deal at his own time, and he remains a big deal within the history of Christianity. So the first thing I want to talk about um, is the complicated relationship that Jerome had with Greek and Roman philosophy. Okay. So in Jerome's words, we're talking about the writing of pagans or mm. non-Christians. So on the one hand, Jerome views the text that these writers produced as heretical. He's worried that they can implant false ideas into the minds of good Christian believers. On the other hand, he's a well-educated scholar, and he has clearly read quite a bit of Greek and Roman philosophy, and he cites it extensively in his work. Nice to see the way we talk about our, like, intellectual, like, uh, what, what's, what's the word? Our intellectual competition? I don't know. Hasn't changed since about the year 300. <laughs> um... So one of the things that we'll see is that he actually mentions Hippocrates and Asclepius in his writings often quite negatively. So in 384 AD, Jerome wrote a letter to a young woman he mentored named Eustochium. And he gives That's her... That's a fun name. It is Eustochium. a fun name, Eustochium. Um, he gives her advice on how to be a pious Christian woman. Oh, I think I'm going to love this. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's going to mansplain to her about how to live her life. Um, such letters were common practice at the time, and they were not necessarily private affairs. It was expected that such letters would be shared with associates, so Jerome appears to have put in a great deal of effort to craft these letters. Okay. In this so letter... this wasn't off the cuff, basically, is what you're saying. No, he doesn't just, like, write it off the cuff like, and then send it to we her. We could maybe forgive him for just a not-so-smart letter to a friend, but no. This no, was a this very is, official document. Yes, and he wants he wants it to be read by other people, too, okay. not just her. It's not a private thing. So he tells her not to seek to appear over-eloquent by reading and mm. quoting from writers like Virgil or Cicero. Men don't like smart girls. Continue. Yep, and... A, Ironically, he does that all the time. He Well, yeah, he's a man, right, obviously. Right. <laughs> and he explains that we ought not to drink the cup of Christ and at the same time the cup of devils. I mean, was someone selling devil juice? Like, I feel like... Apparently Hippocrates was. Or, oh, you know, see. I don't know. Cicero. Oh, is it the opioids at the temple? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so he provides a graphic description of his own struggles with reading Cicero and Virgil and other devils. Mm. So, devils. Yes, the devils. So he writes, Many years ago, when for the kingdom of heaven's sake, I had cut myself off from home, parents, sister, relations, and harder still, from the dainty food to which I had become... <laughs> to which I had been accustomed. Missed my whole family, but really, it's the food. <laughs> it's the food. I mean, when you're starving yourself, I guess that's, that's probably going to be your first Fair priority. Enough. When I was on my way to Jerusalem to wage my warfare, I still could not myself I could not bring myself to forgo the library which I had formed for myself at Rome with great care and toil. And so miserable man that I was, I would fast only that I might afterwards read Cicero. And when at times I returned to my right mind and began to read the prophets, their style seemed rude and repellent. I failed to see the light with my blinded eyes. I, 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 I totally get that I am 1300 years later and I'm sure there's language and all these things, but like, 
just the way he talks about himself, like, red flag. <laughs> like, <laughs> anyone just, like, I, I don't know. There's something about the navel gazing in that that just makes me think, oh, this guy's not going to be a pleasant person to be around. <laughs> you know, I think you're right. <laughs> um, so he goes on to explain how this problem that he had continued for some time. He, he's fasting so that he can read Cicero and it's making him sick, really. Um, yeah, not eating does that. <laughs> right. He's, ex he's, he gets to a point where he's, he's expected to die. And he writes... I love that he's sharing his advice for a living. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he could barely keep his own ass alive. <laughs> my body grew gradually colder, and the warmth of life lingered only in my throbbing breast. Suddenly I was caught up in the spirit and dragged before the judgment seat. Asked who and what I was, I replied, I am a Christian. But he who presided said, Thou liest, thou art a follower of Cicero, and not of Christ. For where thy treasure is, there will thy heart be also. Wow. <laughs> so he goes on to say that he woke from this experience with bruises. Wow. I'm sorry, wait. He was asleep and the gods talked to him and he woke and knew how to do better. That actually sounds a lot like an Asclepian temple. <laughs> <laughs> right, but- I will take the opioids to go to sleep <laughs> as opposed to almost dying. <laughs> It sounds like we come to the same conclusion. <laughs> so he awakes from this experience with bruises and a renewed zeal for Christian scripture. He also pledges never to read Cicero and other pagan writers again. And so in this way, he suggests that Eustochium should not read them either. Oh, so I forgot this was a letter to like some other person. I, I, wow. <laughs> I recommend near death. It does wonders. <laughs> so... Jerome is an advocate of asceticism, which is an idea about purity, um, which, so Christian purity, avoiding indulgences in order to be pure. So in another part of that letter to Eustochium, he actually describes an earlier part of his life where he lived as an, an ascetic hermit in the desert. So he's living in a way so as to avoid all indulgences. And here's what he writes. When I was living in the desert, in the vast solitude which gives to hermits a savage dwelling place, parched by a burning sun, how often did I fancy myself among the pleasures of Rome? I used to sit alone because I was filled with bitterness. Sackcloth disfigured my unshapely limbs, and my skin from long neglect had become as black as an Ethiopian's. Tears and groans were every day my portion, and if drowsiness chanced to overcome my struggles against it, my bare bones, which hardly held together, clashed against the ground. Of my food and drink I say nothing, for even in sickness the solitaries have nothing but cold water, and to eat one's food cooked is looked upon as self-indulgence. So, to, to remove the, 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 the actual god and religious portion for a second i'm just thinking about like the political leader here for a sec right who was like yes we're doubling down we're christians now mm -hmm. and then you have this guy who you put in charge and like i'm just thinking about what a hard sell this is <laughs> like you went from like two years ago the lead like taking care of yourself well-being thing is like 
go to this amazing place where they have all this fun community and games and like you're gonna get some opioids and we're gonna like learn how to feel better <laughs> to starve yourself take away anything that is self-indulgent and like the most extreme version and never ever read a word by anything from the last thousand years of history like that is a hard sell and if i were that political leader i'd be like oh i picked the wrong marketing person <laughs> yeah well you're not you're not wrong i mean he's he's going to be uh, even though I said he was influential, he's not necessarily... Doesn't make him popular. Right. He's not necessarily uh, universally beloved <laughs> by any means. Um, and perhaps the thing that makes him most controversial is the thing we're going to talk about next, which is his obsession with virginity. Oh, yay. Love it. <laughs> so he most fervently uh, defends the idea that being a good Christian meant not having sex. You know, the only more important thing than depriving your own body is to make sure you can deprive other people's bodies. <laughs> In his letter to Eustochium, he describes how he was often tempted to have sex, even while living as a hermit in the desert. So we're going we're gonna to listen to him talk about his Oh, I don't think I want to. <laughs> now, although in my fear of hell, I had consigned myself to this prison, where I had no companions but scorpions and wild beasts... I often found myself amid groups of girls. My face was pale and my frame chilled with fasting. Yet my mind was burning with desire and the fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. Helpless, I cast myself at the feet of Jesus. I watered them with my tears. I wiped them with my hair. And then I subdued my rebellious body with weeks of abstinence. I do not blush to avow my abject misery. Rather, I lament that I am not now what... Once I was, I remember how I often cried aloud all night till the break of day and ceased not from beating my breast till tranquility returned at the chiding of the Lord. I'm not going to lie. I think I like blacked out halfway through that because I didn't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> um, Life yeah. was so hard for your self-imposed crazy, Jerome. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was right. probably the girl's fault for being there, too. Oh, well, we will get to that. <laughs> so, Jerome's also known for publicly criticizing other Christian writers whose views he sees as heretical. Yeah. In his book, Christianity, Book Burning, and Censorship in Late Antiquity, historian Dirk Roman discusses conflicts between different Christian scholars. Roman writes, Rival Christian authors struggled for power among each other by attempting to define what books, including their own, were permitted in libraries. They wanted to ban their own books from their own libraries? Well, they wanted to promote their own books as being allowed in libraries and, and argue against other people's library, uh, other people's books being allowed. And in particular, Jerome is a good example of someone who tried to uh, criticize and discredit other people's writing um, as a way of using his reputation and influence to silence other people's teachings about... Uh... I just really don't like him. <laughs> so... One of the Christian writers that Jerome was especially harsh toward was named Jovinian. And he, he writes in, an incredibly harsh critique of Jovinian. I'll, I'll go to theologian Katerina Paulson for a summary of their disagreement. So she writes, The issues under debate concerned the value of asceticism in the life of a Christian. Jovinian, who was himself a monk, had argued that all baptized persons were equal, 
ascetics were not closer to God than other Christians were. Jerome was among those who had introduced a more radical version of the ascetic life into the Latin world, and this did not go without opposition. Jovinian was one of those who turned against the idea of an ascetic elite separated from ordinary Christians, arguing instead for the unity of the church and the equality between the baptized. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I, I definitely think Jesus was all about how do we put some people over other people and, <laughs> and judge everyone who doesn't do exactly what we do. Yeah, I, I, at least based on the Gospel of Mark that we looked at, that doesn't seem to be part of those teachings, but... I think he missed a couple things about stones. <laughs> so, one of Jerome's friends uh, sent him copies of Jovinian's writings. And Jer Jerome gets these copies, and he feels it necessary to respond to, to Jovinian's heretical ideas at length. I get the sense Jerome always feels it necessary to respond. Yeah. At length. <laughs> so, in three... In box zero. <laughs> In 393 AD, he published a response called Against Jovinian. Uh, and his, re his response begins by insulting Jovinian's writing. He complains for paragraphs, very, very long paragraphs, about how hard it is to... And y'all, if Nick calls them long, they're long. <laughs> so he, com he, he just says that Jovinian's writing makes no sense for like five paragraphs. It's, <laughs> he, he even suggests that Jovinian is mad. Uh, he writes... Oh, interesting. Yeah, he writes, What I ask is the meaning of these portentous words. And of the... <laughs> I'm sorry, you used the word pretentious like... Not, not pretentious. No, pretentious. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like that in and of itself is like the most pretentious thing in the whole world. <laughs> So what I ask is the meaning of these portentous words and of this grotesque description. Would you not think Jovinian was in a feverish dream or that he was seized with madness and ought to be put into the restraints which Hippocrates prescribed? However, or however often I read him, even till my heart sinks within me, I am still in uncertainty of his meaning. Wow. So his problem is Jovinian sounds like he's in a feverish dream and he just wrote a letter about like the most important thing that ever happened to his life is like... <laughs> His, like, fever dream when he almost starved himself to death. Yeah. Hypocrite. Consistency. Hypocrite. <laughs> um, anyway, after he complains about how hard it is to read, he acknowledges that he could make sense of it enough to <laughs> critique it for another 300 pages or whatever. So, early I mean, on... And that page was, like, probably a whole scroll or something. Right? <laughs> That's a good point. Um... Early on in the treatise, Jerome lists a few of Jovinian's claims that he finds objectionable, and the, the first one is, is this. Virgins, widows, and married women who have been baptized, if they are on a par in other respects, are of equal merit. And it's this point that Jerome spends most of his first book arguing against. Yes, focus on the women. Great. So Jerome wants everyone to know that married women who have had sex with their husbands are not as pure as virgins, because they've had sex. He makes his point very clear. He writes, the, tru to a nunnery. <laughs> the truth is that in view of the purity of the body of Christ, all sexual intercourse is unclean. It's fascinating that we are designed that way then. Oh, indeed. So God made some interesting choices. Classicist Warren S. Smith describes the way Jerome comes across in his treatise. Um, he writes, he achieves a narrative tone that is now reasoned, now hysterical, 
and finally rather sad and isolated. <laughs> Smith describes Jerome's treatise as suggesting an obsessive trait, and that uh, Jerome has a tendency to ramble on at length and give the appearance of letting his emotions control him when he is discussing the explosive issue of sexual relationships with women. I feel like a week or a year in the Sclepiad Temple would really do Jerome well. I think so too, yeah. Um, Jerome's taking a position that, even in his own time, was seen as very extreme, and the way he communicated his point was also seen as uh, harsh by even his supporters. Um, but this is what scholar of religion Elizabeth A. Clark wrote about uh, the general consensus on Jerome's point at the time. Many Roman Christians, including wealthy aristocrats, faulted Jerome's renunciatory strictures as excessive. More congenial to them was a brand of Christianity that more warmly espoused family values. So Jerome ends up having to apologize. Family values just mean getting to have a family? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, caring for them and loving them, all that. Um, so... But you had to create them first. That's really the big, big difference here. Definitely, yes. <laughs> so Jerome apologizes, uh, or he has to apologize to one of his friends named Pomachius. So he writes a letter to Pomachius. Pomachius was the person who sent him Jovinian's books in the first place, but, jo but Pomachius got mad at Jerome's uh, harsh critique. So Jerome writes a lengthy letter in response to Pomachius. Uh, and it has some semblance of an apology, but mostly he just explains why he's right. Ah, uh, the non-apology apology. Oh yes, it's a it's a nineteen long paragraph, or it's it's nineteen paragraphs long. Um, and he re-explains his point from the book to his friend, who surely already read the book, and perhaps even agrees with him because he sent him this thing in the first place. Um, let me read to you the end of his letter. Jerome writes, "With my last breath, then." I protest that neither now nor at any former time have I condemned marriage. I have merely answered an opponent without any fear that they of my own party would lay snares for me. I extol virginity to the skies, not because I myself possess it, but because not possessing it, I admire it all the more. I started to imagine Jerome as like a Hamilton-esque figure in the musical. It's like, right and way out his way out you know like he's just gonna keep writing until his hands falls off and and he's gonna win because more is more i mean that's a that's an interesting point in the sense that like uh we actually don't know anything about jovinian other than what jerome told us so in some mm. sense jerome jerome didn't. is this famous because he just wrote so much we it survived right and and he was able to use his power to influence the way that other people took up or didn't yeah. take up certain books jovinian's books were not taken up because of therefore jerome. we don't really know much about we them. don't really know much about him other than jerome oh hates him. powerful men who hate everyone <laughs> how they've shaped history all right well Let's get on to the demons. Yes, please. Say. The demons. I've been waiting for it. Heck yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about another piece of Jerome's writing. This is an auto, or it's, it's a biography of St. Hilarion, who is one of Jerome's friends. Jerome wrote this in 390 AD, so it actually came before against Jovinian. The life of St. Hilarion is one of Jerome's biographies of great Christians. He wrote a few other ones, too. And St. Hilarion was an ascetic monk who lived in much the same way that Jerome apparently did. Uh, or at least ascribed. Right. 
So the life of St. Hilarion is in many ways a text that is intended to promote the type of ascetic life that Jerome values. All right, so we should all be Hilarions. Exactly. That's hilarious. So interestingly, <laughs> Jerome... Interestingly, Jerome describes Hilarion as a great healer and exorcist. Um, Jerome writes, The old man was enabled by grace to tell from the odor of bodies and garments and the things which anyone had touched by what demon or with what vice the individual was distressed. So in other words, Hilarion could smell demons in your body odor. Ew. <laughs> um, so Jerome says that Hilarion was superior to physicians at the time. Uh, well, I literally was just thinking, well, Hippocrates would throw some shade at that skill. <laughs> so, all right, it's only fair he's he, uh, throwing it back. Well, I don't know. I mean, they couldn't smell demons in your body odor. Yes, I believe he called that <laughs> charlatanism. So, Hilarion is able to heal uh, several people who physicians could not heal. According to Jerome. According to Jerome. At one point in the story, Hilarion tells a blind woman... If you had given to the poor what you have wasted on physicians, the true physician, Jesus, would have cured you. He then spat in her face, which is, which seems to be uh, a reference to Jesus putting saliva on a man's eyes in the go Gospel of Mark. Yeah, that's the same. <laughs> I know. <it's laughs> I mean, if we're talking about them like, as healthcare providers, like, what a delightful contrast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, like... You know, gently anointed your eyes. I spat in your face. It does. It does kind of. I think give the the kind of aggressiveness that Jerome's like, Jerome's take on all of this has to it. Um, so, in Jerome's tale, Saint Hilarion exercises demons from seven people and one camel. <laughs> okay. So, I'm gonna discuss two. I of mean, the camels are kind of notoriously like mean buggers, right? Yeah, so. exactly. So they, they like to spit in your face. <laughs> oh, -ho! so I'm gonna discuss two of these exorcisms, not the camel one. Dang. Um, the first one is very similar to the others. We have to do like a special, like, you know, on the Patreon take or something, or just the camel story. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> special. Subscribe feature. and get the camel story. No. So. The first of these exorcisms is very similar to all the others. And then the second one that we'll talk about is very different. So the first story... As in the other six that we're not talking about. Yes, right. So we're going to ignore the other six. Um, but in our first story, Hilarion exercises demons from a wealthy citizen named Orion. Okay. He was possessed by a legion of demons. And that word legion there should make us think of the Gospel of Mark. And indeed, Orion seems very much like the demoniac of Gerasene. Okay. Sending the pigs into the sea, in case anyone's struggling to remember which one we're talking about. Yep. So, Jerome describes Orion as raging mad and hard to control. Hands, neck, sides, feet were laden with iron, and his glaring eyes portended an access of Raging madness. Oh, uh, well, yeah, he was totally incapacitated by iron. I'd be raging mad, too. So Orion sees Hilarion and breaks free from his restraints. He rushes over to Hilarion and immediately picks him up, which causes everyone to freak out and try to save Hilarion, who's old and frail from fasting, so they're worried about him. But Hilarion smiles and says, Be quiet and let me have my rival in the wrestling match to myself. So Hilarion just lifts up Orion, places him in front of him, and shouts, To torment with you, ye crowd of dormants, or to, <laughs> ye crowd of demons, to torment. 
Doormens. Doormens. <laughs> the army of doormens is inside you. Orion's head fell back to the ground, and Hilarion shouts, Lord Jesus, release this wretched man, release this captive. Thine it is to conquer many, no less than one. So at this point, uh, out of Orion's mouth come many different voices, the confused shouts of a multitude, and, and fr there, from then on, Orion was freed of the demons. So later, Orion comes to the monastery to try to give Hilarion gifts of thanks, but Hilarion refuses them. And Orion suggests that Hilarion can take the gifts and give them to the poor, but Hilarion still refuses and says, you can best distribute your own gifts, for you tread the streets of the cities and know the poor. And Orion is sad about this, but Hilarion insists that he can't accept any gifts, and he says, be not sad, my son. What I do for my own good, I, also, I do also for yours. If I were to take these gifts, I should myself offend God, and moreover, the legion would return to you. Hmm. It's interesting that, like, the money piece is the only part that, like, reminds me of Jesus. Yeah. Like, everything else is, like, this aggressive, like, combatant perspective, which feels so counter to, like, what right. I know of Jesus' yeah. like, approach to dealing with people. But at least he's, like... Yeah, and you can't keep your money, like, uh, right. you know, and I don't do this for money. Like, that's the only piece that, like, mm -hmm. feels like it's actually aligned with the teachings. I, I definitely agree that that part about the money, like, really makes it clear that this kind of healing practice only works if it's done freely and, and given yeah. freely. Um, but but yeah, I spit in your face. But I spit in your face, and there's a wrestling match that Hilarion apparently wins. I mean, it's... It's definitely turns up the violence from uh, yeah. from the and, book of Mark. And um, and I never I didn't hear anything in any of those stories that like reminded me of care for the whole person or loving the mm. person or or trying you know what I mean accepting yeah. them in any way. All right, so let's go on to our second story. So this is the story that that isn't like the others, and in this one, uh, Jerome talks about. A young woman so one of the ways this is different is that this is the only story where a, uh, a woman or a girl is possessed mm. all the other ones are I'm men. gonna go ahead and guess that this is well anyways go ahead never mind that that they're somehow going to control this women woman's choices and well yeah I mean like it's the only woman okay this has to do with her sexuality let's go Yes, indeed. Uh -huh, so, <laughs> so this young woman is described as one of God's virgins. Ah, uh, there we go. And Jerome writes that a young man in Gaza was apparently attracted to this woman, and he had used all the tricks he had to seduce her. Jerome explains that he had already tried those touches, jests, nods, and whispers, which so commonly lead to the destruction of virginity. And woman's, because, you know, apparently men, that doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. Wait, hey, at least Jerome also thought men were responsible for being uh virgins or whatever like yeah i mean he does it wasn't just women who had to not have sex technically That's something. technically yes he does but he does still seem to spend more time worrying about women's virginity than fair i mean not fair but like unsurprising right like he he, he admits himself he's not a virgin <laughs> if you remember the hypocrisy okay okay the, the young man is not ready to give up, so he goes to a magician to learn how to control the young woman. Interestingly, Jerome claims the magician was a priest of Asclepius. 
I'm guessing he would not describe himself as a magician. So Asclepius claims, uh, or Asclepius, Jerome claims, does not heal souls, but destroys them. Oh, them's fighting words. So the young man completes... Fight that Asclepius lost. The young man uh, completes a year of training with this magician, and then returns to bury magical items under the young woman's house. Afterwards, the young woman becomes distressed. And Jerome writes... She's a stalker. Yeah, that's distressing. <laughs> well, I, I, I think we have to ask ourselves whether she has a stalker or whether she has some kind of affection for this young man, but that the people around her don't want her to have that uh, affection. That's, yeah, so she's distressed because... Um... Y'all just let me marry this dude already? Yeah. Or, you know, I'm not entirely sure, honestly, which it is. Yeah. Um, because Jerome didn't care. Because Jerome doesn't care, right? <laughs> um, Jerome writes, Thereupon the maid began to show signs of insanity, to throw away the covering of her head, tear her hair, gnash her teeth, and loudly call the youth by name. Her intense affection had become a frenzy. So the story suggests that the young oh. woman has feelings for the young man, but that they're caused by a demon that only enters her after the young man uses evil Asclepius magic. Or alternatively, she's only desperately calling out for the guy she loves and like gnashing her teeth because... Because people she, won't let her... Yeah. Yeah. Only after it's been like two years of this has she... <laughs> so the young woman's parents reach out to get the help of an exorcist and they take her to see Hilarion. And when she arrives in front of Hilarion, the demon immediately begins to howl and confess, claiming he's the real victim in this situation. So the demon says he was forced to do it by the young man. And Hilarion asks the demon why he entered the young woman, and the demon says to preserve her as a virgin. And so Hilarion dismisses what the demon says as lies. That he was trying to preserve her virginity as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Demons, I, from their perspective, soundly don't do that. So, right. Yeah. So he's a liar. The demon is a liar. Um, so the thing that makes this story so different from the other exorcism stories in the life of St. Hilarion is the way Jerome has his character, Hilarion, talk to the woman who is possessed by a demon. Specifically, Jerome writes that Hilarion sharply rebuked the virgin for having, by her conduct, given an opportunity for the demon to enter. <laughs> 1,300 years ago, she was still asking for it. That's right. This is the only exorcism story where Hilarion blames the victim for having some part in their possession. Nice. It is also the only case where a woman is possessed. All of the other cases are men, well, except for and the And it's Campbell. not their fault. And it's not their fault. It's not fault. the Campbell's fault. But the woman, she's to blame. Yeah. Indeed. Wow. We haven't changed at all, have we? Definitely not. No. Yeah. 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 So people be people. Those are our exorcism stories. I, I want to start. I'm gonna give those a big old, um, you know, bad bad healthcare practices thumbs down. Oh. <laughs> you want to do a Yelp review of Hilarion? I mean, like, uh, no. Cause no. like I the problem with even that is I'm like, I don't believe you that you fixed anything based on the way you're writing about it. Like. Mm. I just like, just, yeah, yeah no so trust, no trust. <laughs> all of that trust that we, that we felt from the gospel of Mark, um, you know, there is, there's definitely a lot of 
um, similarity between the Gospel of Mark and Jerome. We when we talked about Orion, we noted all those the legion and all that the stuff. wrestling and the spitting and the... and there's there's still a a sort of attempt to one up Hippocrates and Asclepius, mm -hmm. but Jerome just takes it to a whole other level, right? Well, yeah, and like again, you know, one of the things that stood out to me in Mark was the and now go back to your community and mm. spread this, right? And it just it just really highlights that difference of like the 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 reason and like the that blame is never going to get you to like go back and like be accepted by the community, right? There's no talk of like what we need to do about like the community that buried the student iron. Like <laughs> Yeah. And and one wonders if Jerome even supports the notion of building a community. Yeah. I mean, does he want you instead? No, it sounds like you're supposed to be like isolating in the desert. And yeah. That's no good. I'm not quite sure what the purpose of life is at that point, but Yeah, so if we if we go and we try to think about like what Foucault said, Foucault tells us that um prior to the rise of psychiatry, um people were more willing to take seriously the things that mad people said. Mm -hmm. And they had different ways of talking about this. So if we think about demonic possession as a way of talking about madness, then we can ask ourselves if this is, like you said, is, is this, this a good way of caring for these people? And um, it seems like we shouldn't romanticize um, demonic possession as, as necessarily caring. Because Jerome's... Jerome's case clearly makes the demons into um, into something that perhaps doesn't liberate, uh, the, especially the young woman, but yeah. but rather puts her, you know, puts limits on what she's supposed to do. Yeah, and blames what could be really normal behavior on them. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, I gotta say, the Sclepiad Temple exercised by Hilarion. Gonna go with the temple. <laughs> Even if I have to pay a chicken. Indeed. So Jerome seems to portray women as uniquely threatened by demons. Apparently. Shocker. Yeah, right. Apparently because of the fires of lust, learning, and men. And still he seems to hold women responsible. <laughs> Jerome, you're the worst. <laughs> you're just the worst. And like, just like, I mean, I'm sure he didn't start it. Like, I'm, I'm sure we were already blaming and hating women for men's lust before St. Jerome. But, man, it's hard not to see what he did, what his role in setting Christianity up on a very long path of that. You know who would agree with you? About a thousand years later, after Jerome's life, many people would begin to challenge the authority of the Catholic Church. Mm. One of those people was the renowned priest Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And he had this to say about Jerome. Ooh, let's hear it. I know no writer whom I hate as much as I do Jerome. <laughs> yes. All he writes about is fasting and virginity. <laughs> and that's really where I want to leave our discussion of St. Jerome. Go Martin Luther! <laughs> All right. I think in summary, Jerome, take your ass home. <laughs> uh, we're going to wrap up this episode then. And we'll, we hope you'll listen to our, our next episode when we fast forward into the late Middle Ages in Ooh, England. Jumping and we're going to talk about Marjorie Kemp and her fascinating and bizarre book and all the demons in it. Women get to write books? Women get to write books. And in fact, we're going to talk about more than one woman who wrote a book. Whoa. Jerome would be so pissed. <laughs> so I want to remind our listeners to visit our website, nsuterelu.com, or just Google Neurodescent. And 
Um, on our website, you'll find information about our podcast, including materials that are open access and you can go read for free. So, but don't read your own. <laughs> or do, it's kind of interesting. Um, anyway, uh, until next time. Bye.